Chapter 38 and 39 is where we are. I want to make sure you understand this. I wish I had a board, but I don't. But what I want you to do in your mind is, because that's what's going on here, what is, what is occurring is it's a contrast between Judah and Joseph. Now, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to end up with Judah positively, but throughout almost the entire chapter, Judah is presented as not a very, very nice man uh, at all. And yet, it's important because what is going on in this story of Judah will then be contrasted with Joseph. It's different circumstances, but same test. And it's going to eventually, that is, chapter 38 will result and end, if you will, in the redemption of Judah. Now, the other thing I want to, so just kind of keep that in your mind, the big picture, Judah, Joseph. It's comparing and contrasting the two. Um, but remember something else. Judah, Judah is the most important of the sons of Jacob. Not because he's virtuous, not because he's a man of integrity, but because he will be the tribe, sorry, he will lead the tribe and eventually will become the leader of, uh, of, of Judah. And from Judah comes Christ. Judah is the royal line. And so it is important that we understand what the character of Judah is like and that through this absolutely horrendous situation that Judah gets himself in, that God redeems him. And he makes that statement, she is more righteous than I, referring to tomorrow. So uh, let me just stop for a minute. Are you with me? Do you understand? It's, it's really important that you get these two connections, or you just say, what is this chapter doing here? <laughs> because we were introduced to Joseph last week and you know him getting sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites and all that. And then all of a sudden you read just about Judah. Why is it here? But I think we have to see two things going on, the contrast between Joseph and Judah, and then more importantly, in terms of the larger picture, this is the redemption of Judah, because he is in the royal line. Or I should say, he really is the key to the royal line, because from him will come uh, David, and then from him will come Jesus. And it says in Genesis 49 that the scepter will never depart from you, Judah. The scepter of rule. He will rule. And that becomes so important. Okay? Verse 1. And it happened at that time, what time? <coughs> Presumably, roughly in the same time that this mess with jo Joseph occurred, went down from his brothers and turned aside. Now, what does that mean? He is now going to choose a woman, someone from a Canaanite tribe. He is going to turn aside from his commitment to the other members of the family to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira or Hira. So Adulamite means a Canaanite. That's a Canaanite name. And his name is Hira. Okay, now he is doesn't tell us exactly geographically where he's going, but he says it's just absolutely astonishing what has happened. Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. The Canaanite man is Shua, his daughter's unnamed. We never know her name at this point. He took her and went into her 
and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. Now, do you understand what's going on? She, he took her. In a very real sense, he just said, I want you to be my wife. I've talked to your dad, Shua, and you're my wife. That's it. So she starts having kids. And the first kid is, a, is Ur. And she conceived again, bore a son. His name was Onan. She, she, again, she bore another son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesib when she bore him. We do not know exactly where Chesib is. It must be a small village in the Judean hills in the south there. All right, now let's just make sure you understand what has just happened. Judah has taken a Canaanite woman for his wife, and she has given him three sons. So you're thinking, good night. I didn't think that they were supposed to marry Canaanites. And that's a great conclusion. As a matter of fact, chapter 28, verse 1 makes it clear you're not supposed to do that. So Judah willfully, intentionally, may I add the adverb, defiantly disobeys them. He now has a Canaanite wife. Okay, yes, question. So is that part of my question, but the, the turn aside, does that mean he left the, the company of his brothers, he left the family? And I'd say he left the company of his brothers. I don't know if we can say that he left the family necessarily. But he is, another way of putting it, he is clearly going his own way. He doesn't want the family influence. No, no, he does not want the family influence. He, he, I don't think he's disowning his family, but he's just separating from the family. I'm going my own way. Okay. I mean, that's just, just it's, it's almost incomprehensible. This is Judah. I'm well, excited. He knows what he's doing isn't right. Pardon me? Is it because he knows, he knows what he's doing isn't right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he. this is defiance. He knows that what he's doing would never meet with the approval of anyone else. So you just, this is really, this is astonishing. So Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. That's a very important name to remember. Now, please note, you know, and she took, he took a wife for, remember, these are, this is a paternalistic society, and the father chooses the wives. I mean, this is very, you arrange marriages. You know, love, in the ancient world, love always followed marriage, which your wife and my wife, that's an inconceivable idea, isn't it? You know, it just, that never would work in American culture. But even to a degree in Middle Eastern culture today, you still have that. In Orthodox Jewish culture, you still have the matchmaker. You, you remember, uh, what's the, the Fiddler on the Roof, remember it? Matchmaker, matchmaker, you know, okay. You don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, but for the most part, for the most part, this idea of families choosing wives for their boys is not a modern practice, but it was the practice in the ancient world. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, it, that must remain intentionally nebulous. What does that mean, the Lord put him to death? We don't know. Did he get sick and die? Did he have a heart attack? Did he have a stroke? Uh, was he out in the field and lightning struck him? The text doesn't tell us. All the text says is his uh, sinful actions and lifestyle, God took him. 
Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise her offspring for your brother. Now, again, I don't have a board, so I can't write this on the board. This is what is called a leveret marriage. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leveret marriage. This, again, is a, was a common practice in the ancient world. So what Judah is asking Onan to do is legitimate. There's nothing corrupt about this. This is a normal practice. Now, why? Because Ur has property. Ur has a name, E-R. Remember, that's the son's first name. And, and, and so on. So for that to be preserved, the key is his uh, brother, in this case Onan, needs to take Tamar as his wife and have her become pregnant so that she then gives birth to a boy who can inherit the name and the property of the father of Er. Do you understand? If not, then his name and his property go out of existence. Out of existence. His name you know, and his whole line would cease to exist. And the property would go to somebody else. There are a lot of ways in which that's handled. So this is a very common, uh, very reasonable, and in fact you could add a legal thing to do. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Okay, it's a levered marriage. He would go into her, take her as his, she's not his wife. She is under legal obligation. This is, this is bizarre. We have nothing like this in our culture. But under legal obligation to sleep with Onan to get pregnant. Okay, here's Onan saying, wow, if I do that, I means she'll have children, a boy, and my kids and his kids will be in competition. I don't want that because I want my kids to always be superior. So this is what he decides to do. But Onan knew that the offspring was, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, meaning they would have sexual intercourse, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his, uh, to his brother. I, I, I don't need to explain what he's doing there, do I? I mean, everybody can understand that. Okay, so he is in effect defying what he is supposed to do he is not carrying out that levered obligation. And from God's perspective, that's a sin. Again, this is so bizarre to us. I remember one. this goes back years, years, when I was explaining the levered marriage concept to my wife. She just shook her head. You know, you try to, that means that if you die, I would then have to sleep with Tim. And I, you know, she's just thinking through that. You know, it's just, what this is, but it is, it is a practice that is as weird and bizarre as is hard for us to preserve that man's name and that man's property. And Onan is refusing to do that. So you know, here what you see again is the a picture of a very corrupt family refusing to do what they're supposed to do before God. And Judah, and now his two sons to this Canaanite woman. It's just, oh my goodness. Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 
How? We don't know. We don't know what God did. But what the text is just saying, because Onan was not carrying out his responsibilities, the Lord took him. So how many boys does Judah have left? One. He has one boy left. Ten. Then Judah said to Tamar, now who's Tamar? She's the wife of Ur. She's the one. Okay, so she's a very important person in this, this story. He said to his Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, that's the third one, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, you do understand what's going on here. Judah is refusing to give his third son in a leveret marriage relationship to Tamar. Why? If God took my first two, he's going to take my third one too because I have rotten kids. And he's not going to do what he's supposed to do. I'm making that up a little bit. But, I mean, in fact, that's what it is. I'm not going to give Shalem to you tomorrow. So go back to your father's house, and when Sheila feels like it, he'll call you and come in. So you, what's going to happen here? Tamar ends up really being the heroine of this story. Verse 12. Are you with me on this? This is so weird and bizarre, but it's, it's very important in the conclusion. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Now remember, that's original wife that starts the chapter. She remains unnamed. We don't know who she is in terms of a name. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Okay, now what's happening here is he's going out and doing what he normally does, looking over his flocks, looking over his sheep herds and so on, and he's near this guy who, uh, whom he met earlier. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance of Enaim. We do not know where that is. But Enaim means yes. That's the meaning of the town's name. Yes, why yes, which is on the road to Timnah. Uh, these names are not as important for now. I'm not going to try to point them out. I want to make sure you get the story. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given in him to marriage. Now, let's stop for just a moment. What Tamar is about to do is to make sure that what she deserves and her rights in the ancient Near Eastern culture are fulfilled. What is her right? My original husband died. The second man in the Leverett relationship died. I have the right to his brother coming in to preserve my property, my family, and my name. She has a right to this. And Judah is refusing to honor that. And Sheila, the third son, is refusing to honor that. So what's Tamar doing? She's taking the situation in her own hands. And what did it just say? She put on a veil, wrapping herself up, verse 
15. An insight in the profane, immoral character of Judah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. Why? For she had covered her face. Typical, um, when you're in public, persona of a prostitute. Because a man isn't arrested in her face. A man's only arrested in her genitalia. Now, that's a, isn't that a horrible thing I just said? So, this is, so what's Judah? Judah has one thing in mind. Sex. He's away from home. He has a need. He sees a prostitute. Thank you, Lord. I, I shouldn't have made that. I'm sorry. Verse 16. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. And that's euphemistic language for how much is it going to cost for you to lay with me? For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now, Tamar is doing something very risky here. I mean, she could have actually been disowned, possibly even executed in this kind of a society, but she is insisting on her rights. Because if not, she will lose all. She's taking the risk. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me. How much will you pay me? Verse 17, he answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Three elements to positively, irrefutably identify this as Judah. Signet, the ring that identifies him. His staff and the cord that wraps around his, his robe. She's pretty shrewd, isn't she? She's pretty smart. She's pretty forward thinking. Okay, you promised me an animal. I like that, but you got to give me a pledge that you'll keep that promise. Down payment or yeah, yeah, or yeah. I just want to make sure that you're going to keep your word. This is amazing. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garment of her widowhood. Verse 20. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute? Some of your translations might have sacred woman with sacred in quotation marks, who was at Enaim at the roadside. And they said, there's no cult prostitutes been here. Now he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. <clears throat> also, the men of the place said, there was no cult prostitutes been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, 
I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Let's keep this quiet. Let's cover this up. We don't want anybody to know this. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. She's committed prostitution. She's been unfaithful. Moreover, she's pregnant by this immorality. Now remember, this is his daughter-in-law. He had, she had been married to Ur, his firstborn, and then Onan, fulfilling the Leverett Pledge. So it's really important because this is part of the image of Judah publicly. This is part of his persona in this part of, of the land. So he responds in this righteous indignation, this virtuous man of integrity, this paragon of virtue cries out, I, I'm preaching now, okay? Bring her out and let her be burned. What words might you use to describe Judah here? Would hypocrite work? Yeah, I think that would work. Hypocrite. How dare you say this? Judah. Verse 25. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again, meaning he had no more sexual contact with her. This is a turning point in Judah's life. This really is. It's, it's, it's a bizarre and quite horrific story in a very dysfunctional family. But Judah comes face to face with who he really is. She, Tamar, my daughter-in-law, is more righteous than I. You see, we're, we're trying to filter through all this. No, wait a minute. She feigned that she was a prostitute, and she allowed him to, because she has the right to have that preserved. Her name, property of her husband, she's in the right. Now, deception, yes. Duplicity, yes. But Judah is hardly the hero of this story. But this is a turning point in his life. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, meaning back into the womb, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez and his brother afterward came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. His name was Zira, Z-E-R-A-H. Um, now, is there some, some significance to that 
thing with the thread, and are we supposed to remember Sarah and Perez? You really need to remember Perez. You okay. really need to remember Perez. And Perez was Perez. He was the he. He didn't get the thread around his hand. No, no, Zira did. How many times does the first guy out not be the real important guy in the story? Right. You know, I think almost every one of them. Perez, you will see it if you go to Matthew chapter one. And you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it says Perez by Tamar. So you have two names in the genealogy of Jesus, Perez and his mother, Tamar. Tamar is one of the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is one of them. Rahab, who is she? She was the prostitute in Jericho. Then you have Tamar. Who's she? She's a Canaanite. And you have Bathsheba, the mother of um, Solomon. She was probably a Hittite. And then you have Mary. Oh, I forgot one. Because before um, or after um, Judah to or uh, Perez uh, to uh, Tamar, you have Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite. So isn't that amazing? Three, or perhaps four, but three of the four women in the genealogy of Jesus are not Jews. Grace of God. Mercy of God. The amazing inclusiveness of God. Even in his son's line. So this, this is a very, very, very important part of the narrative. What's happening to Judah? This is the turning point in his life. Gives birth to Perez through Tamar out of his unwillingness to do what he was supposed to do and so on. God is still in control of the situation. And the third point is this contrast, this chapter contrast with the next chapter. When Joseph faced a similar, not identical, circumstances are totally different, but a similar situation. What is he going to do in a very tempting situation for immorality? And that, of course, you know what happens to Joseph. All right? When, when God yeah. makes a promise to us, and one of the promises I, that I, I think of, as I think of all these different circumstances, is he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if he has given us a promise through Christ and we come and accept that sacrifice and begin to live for him, then similar to this in different ways, in different circumstances, we might be encouraged by this story when things don't seem to be going like we thought they would go that that verse comes back I will never leave you nor forsake you don't I mean that this doesn't this you know, sort yeah. of remind you yeah. of that or yeah. well and two that um, God always keeps his promises and his plan will never be thwarted never 
It is, it is a fascinating—I did a study one of this. It took a while, but how many times is God's plan, redemptive plan, almost defeated? If you look, for example, at the Davidic line in the, the, the history of Judah, there is one point in the history of Judah. That's, remember, that's the kingdom of Judah with the king, the Davidic line. There's one point where there's only one human being left in the Davidic line, and it's a little baby. And the queen of that kingdom wants to kill that baby. And if that baby would be killed, the Davidic line would end, which means the Messianic line would end. And it's an amazing story of how that baby was preserved. Uh, I mean, you're so, you, can go to the, you can go to Esther and the, 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 the book of Esther. Do you remember um, Haman? What Haman wants to do is exterminate all Jews from the Persian Empire. That's it's genocide. Kill every Jew. And you remember what happens. What if that would have occurred? That means every part of the redemptive promise would end. God couldn't fulfill the promise because the Davidic line would have been wiped out. The Jews had been gone. But you remember what happens. Mordecai just turns the tables, and Haman's the one who ends up uh, being executed. I mean, it's just so many times if you study, if you study it from that perspective, you see Satan or evil trying to thwart God's redemptive plan. One of the more famous ones in the ministry of Jesus is his temptation. And Satan's third temptation to him, he's up in the, probably Mount Hermon, but the highest mountain, and says, somehow, see all the kingdoms, I'll give these to you. That's, that's the kingdom promise of the Father. That's Daniel 7, 13 and following. I'll give you planet Earth as your inheritance. Psalm 2, 7, you will rule over this in my name. So what's Satan offering him? Exactly what the Father offered him. But there was one catch. Bow down to me. Just bend the knee, and I'll give it to you. So if Jesus would have bowed down to Satan, there would have been no cross, and Satan would have won. Now that, you know, it, it, that didn't happen. The language of the text is clear. Jesus didn't even think about it. He just said, get out of here. Be gone. No one can do that. But how many times it's almost thwarted. So even in something like this, with all this dysfunction and terrible interpersonal family relationships and the conniving, deceitful cover-up of Judah, God still provides the continuation of the royal line that's going to produce Jesus. And now Tamar's boy to Judah, Perez, is in that line. And we've seen everything we've read shows that God will straighten us out, you know? Yes. God will bring good out of something so evil as Judah. (laughs) But to me, too, as, as Judah says, she's more right. This is a turning point in his life. No one is beyond the pale of God's grace and forgiveness. I mean, I don't know about you. I look at Judah and say, well, man, I'm done with Judah. I got to find somebody else. This just can't pot. No, he's going to be in the royal line. And I mean, that to me, that gives hope because I, uh, only the Lord knows all that's been a part of my life. And yet God still, you know, particularly pre-72, 1972, God still gives me opportunities to be used by him. 
and the same in each one of our lives. That's grace. That's the majesty of our God. He uses us despite our sin, not because of our righteousness. The righteousness we have is because of Christ, not anything we've done. Hey, Jim, I might suggest <laughs> something else also. And we mentioned it. I don't want to get into the political either, but, you know, there was a lot of divisiveness in, oh. in that whole campaign. Terrible. And uh, Jesus can make a change in that. Too. Yes, yes. And I think really, I, again, I don't want to get into the politics of this year, but I really hope what we prayed and what we briefly talked about that should be something that you, 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 you men and, and I, we should be praying about that. Not that some political agenda's met. I mean, things are going to be different now. The Republican Party's in control of the powers of the central government. I'm expecting things to be a little different in the next four years. But let's not be ideologues about this. And, and just, okay, finally, we won, we triumphed, we're better than you. no. I mean, we can take that triumphal note, but rarely do really positive things. Let's, let's ask the Lord that we can model forgiveness and cleansing and healing of our country. And I hope, I, I don't, I, I only, I don't know anything about Donald Trump other than what I've read. It's hard for me to be optimistic about his temperament and his character. I mean that. Just, you know, what I've read about him and what I've heard about him and what I know of about some of the books that he's written. I just, I don't think he's the model man, but God can change him. God can use him. And let's just hope he takes that demeanor, a humble, humble demeanor of serving, not boisterous, bombastic, lording it over. I won. I just hope he does. I hope he does do what he really should do. What he said last night is acceptable. I hope he really does that. Because if he doesn't, and he truly tries to be the bombastic, dictatorial, I'm right, and everybody, I'm the only one that can change things. You know, if that's the role he takes, that's not going to heal. It's going to make things even more divisive. So I'm really praying. Uh, that's, I'm really praying that he will take that perspective. Time will tell. Jim. I would encourage you, if you haven't done it, to look at uh, Google Max Lucada on November 9th. I don't know when he wrote this, but apparently sometime before the election, and I don't know what he was, what the speculation was. Maybe that was uh, that Hillary Clinton would win. But somebody asked him how he would respond on the morning of November 9th, and the opening paragraph is is amazing, very encouraging. He said, "I will get up, and as I do every morning, I will see God ruling in His absolute sovereignty." Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to explain how. God has worked through the, used his hand to, to turn the mind of leaders, just mm-hmm. like he can turn a river. And That's right. several examples. That's so, right. I mean, it's, it's really much along the line what you've been teaching us today about God's sovereignty, mm-hmm. even through these, mm-hmm. I don't know what to call them. Well, corrupt people. Corrupt I mean, people. this is a corrupt man. Judah, at this point in his life, is very corrupt. Yeah, you're right. And that's that's the encouragement that I will grab hold of and that I think all of us will grab hold of. Of what what God has done in history, what God both biblical history and in 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 history outside of the scriptures. And so let's not conclude God can't do it with Donald Trump. I didn't expect I don't know about you, I did not expect Donald Trump to win. I really didn't. I'm not saying anything about how I voted and it's not what I mean. I just didn't expect him to win. 
But uh, I fell asleep, and my wife said, Honey, Donald Trump won. All of a sudden, I'm shocked out of my sleep. So anyway, I, was just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I just, no, honey, you must have. Were you dreaming? No, no, no. Anyway. Well, um, I hope you got and noodled through all the stuff of Chapter 38. And you, you got the main couple of points I wanted to make. This is an astonishing chapter. So let's move. I don't think we'll get it done, but let's move into chapter 39, which is very... Could you just restate those two things that you you just presented in your mind that you, you want us to get? I mean, just one, two... About this chapter or about what I was saying about the election? Uh, no, about, well, that uh, you, you, I mean, you, I don't remember exactly how I said it, but you, you do have, uh, first of all, you have the contrast between Judah and, and, and Joseph, which is set up. But two, you, you have the, the way in which God will always keep his promise. And he always will do it. Regardless of what humans do, he will do it. And he will take even very evil, corrupt men doing evil and corrupt things to accomplish his purpose, which is through Judah is going to come David. From David's going to come my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing can thwart that plan. And then you see that through this, Judah is a changed man. God will use this circumstance in Judah's life to change him. He recognizes, and instead of covering up, instead of uh, trying to to justify what he did and rationalize it, no, she is more righteous than I. This is a turning point in Joseph's, uh, uh, excuse me, Judah's life, and Judah's going to be different. Um, we don't have an awful lot of material in Judah, but from here on out, Judah's a different man as a result of this. And every one of us in our lives, I, I believe we could we could recount in our lives where there are instances where we did something very defiantly disobedient to God, and still ultimately, at the end, God brought good out of it in our life. That's true for my life. Oh, my goodness. I think all of us could testify to that. Yeah, I sure hope I'm a different man. You are. You are. I've I've known you only a few years, but Woody, you you are a different man when I first knew you. God has been working in his life, in your life very, very much. I really mean that. And for a lot of you, I, I've seen that, John. Uh, two, two questions. Um, the thing that Judah did wrong was failing to give Sheila... That's right. I mean, because the, his obligation, remember that leveret marriage, that's, that's a very important uh, uh, principle. And 38 is titled Judah's Adultery. Well, I can't see that it was adultery. He was a widower. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it adultery. No, no. no I, I don't think that's the right term. Yeah. But, and then finally, what's the significance of the twins and the hand that came out first? And ribbon? I mean, who, who, who's... Which one of those, Perez or Zira, now continues the life? Perez. Perez. P-E-R-E-Z. Perez. Perez. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think... Uh, some people have tried to make some symbolic significance to this card. That is just a common practice. I, I'm not sure we can make any significance out of this card. But I, we did say, so often in God's economy of things, the second becomes the first. 
Wait, was that part partly tied to inheritance too? I mean, yes. Is it? Yes. Okay. Yes, because he would be the one. He would be the one who would inherit. Yeah. Now let's introduce again. We won't get this all finished, but let's introduce chapter thirty-nine because we back on the chronology now. Joseph, remember, had been sold by his brothers to Ishmaelite and uh, and Midianite. They take him down uh, to Egypt. So he's in Egypt, and that's how he got down there. Joseph is, along with Daniel, Joseph is the only key leaders about which nothing negative is said. Joseph is a man of sterling character, just like Daniel is. And the key phrase for the rest of the book of Genesis is, the Lord was with Joseph. That's the key phrase. So just look for that. As we go through these next chapters, look for that. The Lord was with Joseph. So what you have here is a clear statement of one, God's sovereignty, because Joseph is in Egypt for one major purpose and one major purpose alone. He will become the second most powerful man in Egypt, and it will explain why the entire clan of Jacob comes down to Egypt. There's no other way a Semitic clan would be welcomed in the delta of the Nile River unless some key Egyptian official approved of it. And there was no Egyptian official to do that except Joseph. And as you know, in God's plan, that is where the nation will be birthed. The clan of Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. And in 430 years, they will go from a clan of 70 to a nation of at least a million, if not 1.5 million. I'll talk about why that number is the right one much later on. So in terms of the big picture of what's going on, that's why Joseph's in Egypt. But the other factor is this: the impeccable character, the consistent integrity of this man. Excuse me. Yeah. I have a, two grandsons. One is in his 20s and one is 18 or 19. And their names are Jacob and Joseph. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, good. I was really looking forward to when, uh, when uh, Jacob... Became Israel. <laughs> okay, Genesis 32. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The other one. My son and you. You met him. Yeah. Yeah. I I've got to find out how they happened upon those names. Yeah, that'd be I'd be interested why they chose those names. Yeah, because they're two really good names. Yeah, they really are. So let's let's just get into it and set it up for for next week. So Joseph, in verse 1 of chapter 39, had been brought down to Egypt. You know how he got down there. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So coincidence? That one of the top people in Pharaoh's court buys Joseph? Or providence? Well, obviously providence. Verse 2, there's our phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And please note, it's in capitals, capital L, capital O, that's Yahweh. The self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am is with Joseph. And he became successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Now, in your mind, I don't know if you're thinking that way, verse 3 of chapter 39 should take you back to Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Why is Potiphar being blessed? Because of Joseph. He is taking care of Joseph. He's giving Joseph, and you'll see this, authority. He's giving him responsibility. He's doing a good job, so God blesses him. Genesis 12, 3, in action. Verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, whose sight, Potiphar's sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house. Now, ESV, that's how ESV translates that, overseer of his house. In other words, he is the master of everything that Potiphar owns. He's just the manager, he's the steward, he's the overseer, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From that time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. And in your Bible, you should write next to verse 5, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I, I I just want you to make sure you make these connections because that is so important in those introductory verses about Abram. (laughs) And then we've just seen it. Wherever, wherever (laughs) Abraham's descendants go, if they, are, if they find favor and they're blessed, God will bless those people. Is that true in 2016? Yeah. I would make the argument one of the reasons God has so richly blessed the United States is how we bless the Jewish people. In the history of the world, the United States has been the most open society to embracing Jews. There's, been, there's, almost, no, there's almost no residue in a significant way of anti-Semitism in the United States. We don't have a history of pogroms. We don't have a, you know what I mean? Pogroms, the intentional government persecution of people, like Russia did. Russia under the SARS had massive pogroms against the Jews. And, of course, the Holocaust and all that stuff. Spain threw all the Jews out of their country in 1492. I mean, just go on and on and on. So this is just an instructive thing to observe as you go through the scriptures and as you go through history. Now here, Potiphar is being blessed. Why? Because of Joseph. So verse 6, though, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything uh, but the food he ate. So Potiphar, I mean, he's got a fantastic CEO. Maybe it's a COO, chief operating officer. I mean, he has the perfect guy you would want. He did all kind of personality tests on Joseph. He ran him through everything. He said, you're the man. I made all that up. But it's just... So Potiphar, I mean, it's like fantastic guy I have here. And then Mrs. Potiphar comes along. I thought it was interesting that the only thing that he was concerned about was looking ahead to the next meal. Exactly, exactly. That's that, that, you got a good man when that's the only thing you're concerned about. He has no worries, no anxiety, no concern about the future. Joseph put together a great strategic plan. They have the operational goals. They test every three months. I mean, this is perfect. 
Now, there's a little statement added at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. My daughter would say, Dad, he was a hunk. And the text is telling us he was a good-looking man, he was athletic, he was attractive. Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, there's a pattern here. I don't know if we're going to get through all this today. If I had a board, I'd write it up. But there's a pattern here that you see in, in this paragraph through the end of the chapter. There's temptation. There's refusal. There's temptation. There's refusal. And a whole cycle of temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation and refusal. Joseph never gives in. The third, fourth major part, sorry, the third major part of the cycle, temptation, refusal, then a whole series of temptation and refusal. The third cycle is false accusation. This one, false accusation. Okay, right. And then the last in the cycle is imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And so you have to say, well, for all of his character and integrity, where did it get him? falsely accused, and in prison. That the conclusion we're to reach is it's not worth it to be a man of character and integrity. Amen? Now, please don't conclude that. <laughs> I'm just trying, you know, I'm trying to get you to pay attention. So let's look at this, because every human being can fit himself or herself. I don't mean the exact specifics. They're, they're, into, it, this is the cycle of life. It's a temptation, and you refuse ongoing temptations and refusal, sometimes false accusation, and then a severe penalty. It often costs to stand for the Lord. Sometimes it costs to stand for the Lord, to stand for righteousness, to stand for integrity. It does. So what happens? Um, another uh, couple of verses, and we'll have to stop. Verse 8, but... He refused. I mean, you know what, lie with me. You know what, that's a euphemism for come into my bed. And he said, because, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you were his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? And here's the key. And sin against God. I have a commitment to my master, to Potiphar, but my greater commitments to God. Hey Jim. Yes. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when David confesses in Psalm fifty-one and he mm. says, "Against thee and thee." Yeah, I have sinned. Exactly. Yep. And exactly. From a natural perspective, are you kidding? Yeah. When you had sex with this woman. Yeah. Killed her husband. Yeah. But he, in his mind, when he realizes his greatest sin is against the Lord. That's, right. That's exactly right. So here, we had read in a moment ago at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, is Joseph with the Lord? Yes. Joseph's with yeah. the Lord, too. 
So, I mean, you had that preach as well, by the way. That's why I said it that But you just have this, this remarkable, deep-seated commitment of trust and faith and dependence by Joseph in the Lord. And the language in the Hebrew is, is, is this. It is inconceivable that I would go against God. It's inconceivable that I would do this. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, that's the second step, continual, ongoing, perpetual temptation, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. The text is very clear. Listen, lie beside, just come, just come and lay down beside me. We don't have to do anything. Just lay down beside me. No. Or to be with her, i.e. to have sex with her. What's the point? Joseph would not compromise in any way. Because sin starts with a thought, becomes a desire, and produces action. He didn't even want a thought. He didn't listen to her. He didn't lay down beside her, sit on the the sofa and drink a Starbucks coffee together, nor have sex with her. He will not compromise. So come back next week and we'll finish this remarkable narrative. And then we'll get into chapter 40 because what happens to Joseph is horrible. But God is with Joseph. It's really good. This is a ma- an amazing character study of, of one of the significant individuals of Scripture. All right? Uh, Lord, we thank you for our time of study around the Word of God today, uh, that quite bizarre uh, narrative about Judah and now the introduction of Joseph. And uh, it is a contrast between two men, and yet with Judah we see the amazing commitment you have to your promise, to your covenant, to keeping your word, and to accomplishing your program, that redemptive program. And it's going to be through Judah. And uh, yeah, with Tamar, who becomes the heroine, we see it's very strange and bizarre for us. But we see again, what you are doing in history is accomplishing your plan and your purposes, even using often corrupt, immoral situations and people who compromise to accomplish their own personal ends, you superintend it for your greater ends. And this is one of those situations, too, at the end, where we see Judah broken. Judah's turning point. He's a changed man. And that's another really important and very significant part of the teaching of Scripture. You change people. You transform people. Lord, we just take comfort in that because all of us are in and have been in and probably will be in situations. And we want to be men who trust you, men who depend on you. We want to be like Joseph. We want to walk with you. And not only are you with us, but we want to be with you. And we want to not even allow ourselves to get into situations where we can compromise our integrity or our position with you. So apply this to our lives by faith. Uh, we, we thank you for that because we know you're doing that. Now, as we go our separate ways, Lord, uh, be with us, uh, use us, help to develop us into men of faith and men of trust in you that can make a difference in other people's lives. 
And so we ask you to help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.